Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac Podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's Word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org. I begin this morning with a question. What is the most talked about subject in Revelation? What is the most talked about subject in Revelation? The answer is going to surprise you because it surprised me because the most talked about subject in Revelation is actually Babylon. It's Babylon. By the numbers, there are 42 verses about Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. 44 of the 404 verses in Revelation talk about Babylon, which means that 11% of Revelation is about Babylon. And then in the bigger picture, Babylon is mentioned 287 times in the scriptures. The only city that is mentioned more, of course, would be Jerusalem, which is about 800 times. So clearly, if we're going to get a handle on understanding Revelation, and really the Bible for that matter, we've got to understand Babylon. And that's where Revelation 17 and 18 comes into play. Revelation 17 through 18 provides another interlude, a break in the action in Revelation to fill in some necessary details. It takes us back in time to give us details about the destruction of Babylon. So if we look at our timeline here, this is really fascinating to me. Where we are today is signified by the red arrow. We've come a long way, haven't we? Um, It's really exciting that we've made it through the seals, the trumpets, the bulls, and the next event on the timeline is what? It's the second coming of Christ. But we have to wait just a, a little bit longer. I know we're just like, oh, I can't wait to get there. We have to wait just a little bit longer for that because the next two chapters are an interlude that takes us back in time to give us more detail about the fall of Babylon. You remember back in chapter 14, verse 8, that w- the second of those three angels that were flying overhead declared the fall of Babylon, where it said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Well, Babylon did indeed fall during the bold judgments, as we saw last week in 1619. It says, And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. But there's a lot that's unsaid with that. It's like, well, how how did that happen? And um, what is the significance of that? And that's where chapters 17 and 18 come into play. They fill in the details for us. But first, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's go back briefly and review what we know about the history of Babylon. You'll remember that Babylon has its roots in the Tower of Babel. We go all the way back in the scriptures to Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. Mankind came together and said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And so what we see here is at Babel, mankind rebelled against God and set out to create a man-made religion which elevated self over God. And that's a really important phrase for us this morning, a man-made religion that elevates self over God. And so in this sense, Babel really became the birthplace of organized idolatry. Babel became the birthplace of organized idolatry and therefore the mother of all false religions. You name a false religion, you can trace it back to its origin, to its birthplace at Babel. And we see her children running rampant across the earth today. It all started at Babel, the birthplace of organized idolatry. Well, over time, Babel became to be known as Babylon. 
a people and an empire continually at odds with God and his people, culminating in the reign of a very evil king named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, and the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC, at which point God's people were taken away into exile. And so with that background, over time, Babylon became the ultimate symbol of rebellion against God. It was a symbol. If you said Babylon, you knew what it was talking about. It was rebellion against God. It's named synonymous with sin, with idolatry, and those who oppose God and his kingdom. And so here in Revelation, in a general sense, Babylon refers to the entire worldwide political, economic, and religious kingdom of the Antichrist. It's an ideology, an ideology at war with God and his kingdom. But here in chapters 17 and 18, we're going to get much more specific about Babylon and its destruction. Today, we're going to look at the spiritual aspect of this kingdom during the tribulation. And next week, we'll look at the material aspect of it. And how at the end of the day, both the material and the spiritual are made to drain the cup of the wine of the fury of God's wrath. And then we'll end with that all-important question, how should we then live? Because the Bible is about application, right? This isn't just about us filling our heads with more knowledge. It's about what do we do with this? How do we apply it to our lives? Well, interestingly, in Revelation 17, Babylon is referred to or described as a woman. Now, ladies, don't get offended by that, okay? Because in the scriptures, the church is also described as a woman, is it not? The bride of Christ. Check out Revelation 21, verse 9. Today, um, John is going to get to see the woman Babylon, and a few chapters ahead, he's going to get to see the woman, the bride. But first, to hear Revelation 21, 9, John says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Further, the Apostle Paul, he said in 2 Corinthians eleven two, 2, he says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And so the church consistently throughout Scripture is portrayed as a woman, a pure, holy, virtuous bride who eagerly awaits her groom. But Babylon, different kind of woman Altogether, Okay, we read about her in Revelation 17, 1. The text begins like this. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. So, in contrast to the bride of Christ, what kind of woman is Babylon? She's a prostitute. She's one who seduces and ensnares, one who promises momentary pleasure but delivers bondage and destruction. And how does she do this? Well, the way that Babylon has done it throughout history is that same phrase I shared with you earlier, through man-made religion that elevates self over God. So in light of that, we'll use four terms interchangeably today. So when you hear me say one, I'm really referring to the three others as well. The woman is the same as the great prostitute, who is the same as Babylon the Great, which is the same as this man-made false religion that elevates self over God. Religion that is anti-Christ, anti-truth, anti-scripture. 
So in our text today, they all mean the same thing. Well, verse 1 goes on to describe the scope of this woman's influence, the scope of this false religion. It says that she's a great prostitute who is seated on many waters. So how far-reaching is her influence? It's great. It's a mega influence. But what does it mean about her being seated on many waters? Some have attempted to use this verse to, to place Babylon on a map geographically next to a body of water just as historic Babylon was located on the Euphrates River. But as we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, verse 15 gives us a different answer. Verse 15 says, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And so that phrase really tells us, it's not about geography on a map, it tells us that this false religion has global influence. It has global influence. It's ensnaring peoples and multitudes from everywhere, all nations, all languages. And the fact that the woman is seated, this is the posture of a ruler, meaning that this false religion is reigning over the earth at this time. And so here's the thing. We already saw that during the Great Tribulation, in a positive sense, there's going to be a great gospel revival, right? Remember when we saw that? We had 144,000 sealed Jewish evangelists, and then we had the two special messengers, Moses and Elijah, and then we had the three angels flying overhead proclaiming the gospel so that in Revelation 7, 9, it told us that there's a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So great is going to be this revival during the tribulation. But there will also be an accompanying counterfeit revival. Droves of people who buy into the false religion of Babylon, seduced by the great prostitute. And so it is worth noting that during the tribulation, we might be tempted to think that people are just going to become more secular. Not so. People are actually going to become more spiritual, but a very wrong and gross form of spirituality. This is Proverbs 14, 12 religion, a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You might ask, well, Chad, what are the characteristics of this kind of religion? The text doesn't really sell it, tell us, but I think we can make some educated guesses about what this religion will be like. Um, I think we can surmise that it will be doctrinally fuzzy, not, not dogmatic, you know, about telling us about right and wrong. It's like this live and let live kind of religion. I believe it will be experientially occultish. Again, it will be very spiritual and very into spiritual power as the Antichrist reigns on the earth. It will preach ecumenical tolerance, but it will put to death all those who live and believe differently. And so in this sense, I don't know if any of this sounds familiar to you, but the seeds of Babylon, I believe, have already been planted and are growing all around us. And many buildings who have the name church on the sign out front will become centers for Babylon the Great and may already be. The prostitute's global influence is further described in verse 2, where it says, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. And so what that tells us is that this counterfeit revival, it reaches even heads of state. They buy in. They themselves become very spiritual, embracing the religion of Babylon. They've been seduced by the great prostitute, whose control over them is described in the second half of verse 2, where it says, 
and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Interesting phraseology. The prostitute's influence is described as what? Intoxication. Intoxication. And the truth of the matter is that people who are drunk, they don't think straight, do they? They make terrible, irrational, illogical, destructive decisions. And so it is here with the leaders of the earth, the dwellers of the earth. They will be seduced and intoxicated by the woman under her spell, led astray to embrace this false religion, man-made, elevating self over God that rejects the truth of Scripture and of the one true living God. Well, how did this woman, this false religion, get such power over people? Well, look at verse 3 where John says, this is really fascinating, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman, this is the same woman, sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Well, what's this scarlet beast all about? We've met him before, haven't we? Back in chapter 13, where it was describing the Antichrist. Back to 13.1, it says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. That's what we just experienced here in chapter 17, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Same beast, chapter 13, Antichrist, chapter 17. A beast with seven heads and ten horns. Removing all doubt as to the identity of the beast, this is the Antichrist the beast from the sea, a political leader who has satanic authority to rule the earth. Well, the text tells us that the woman, the false religion, is riding on the back of the Antichrist, of the beast, right? And so what exactly is the meaning of this image? What it means is that during the first half of the tribulation, there is a partnership there's a partnership between the Antichrist, the beast, and the false religion, who is the prostitute. They're teammates working together for the purpose of world domination and opposing Christ. And Skip Heitzig said it this way. He said, the beast will support the woman and her false religious system. Using his political and economic clout, he will help her to become a worldwide force. So, and she will help him to exert his political control. This is not a new idea, is it? If you've studied world history at all, we've seen such unholy alliances between religion and government throughout history. Um, a good contemporary example that we can envision is, is Islamic nations that are ruled by Islamic law, where religion and government come together for the purpose of controlling the people. So it will be during the tribulation. Verse 4 goes on to describe the appearance of the woman. Uh, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. This is a beautiful woman. She's decked out all kinds of jewels and colors, and I believe this represents for us at the end of the day the luxury that will be associated with this false religion. This is going to be prosperity theology to the nth degree. And for the reasons that it is prosperity theology, prosperity or religion, it will be so very alluring to the people, just as prosperity theology is alluring today. But when it's all said and done, the woman's true character is identified how? By what's in the cup. By what's in the cup, the gold cup. For the cup contains nothing more or less than the abominations and impurities that lead to judgment. 
Jesus called the Pharisees back in the day whitewashed tombs. They looked so good on the outside, but inside they were dead men's bones. And so it is here, powerfully illustrating for us the truth that truly all that glitters isn't gold. And that's important for us today to get that in our heads. Truly, all that glitters is not gold as Satan continually attempts to seduce us to idolatry with all kinds of shiny things, beautiful things even, that promise fulfillment but ultimately leave us empty and ensnared. You see, church, Babylon the Great is alive and well today, doing all that it can to lure you away from the truth. Well, verse 5 gives the woman a name. It says, On our forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And just as we said earlier that Babel was the birthplace of organized idolatry, her legacy continues here in the tribulation. The mother of the prostitutes and even culminates here in verse 5. Now what exactly does it mean that her name is a mystery? Well, a mystery in a biblical sense refers to something revealed presently. That's what's happening here in Revelation. It's being revealed presently that had not been known before. Things that the Apostle John didn't know before, he knows now because the mystery is being revealed to him. And so in this case, it is being revealed to John and now to us the role that false religion will play during the Great Tribulation. Babylon the Great, the great prostitute, the great false religion will intoxicate the whole world and strengthen the control of the Antichrist. And as part of the exercise of that control, the beast will put to death all who do not join them. We've seen this before in our study. Look at verse 6. It says, And I saw the woman drunk herself with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And so Babylon the Great, the great prostitute, the great false religion will prioritize the extermination of tribulation saints. You don't have to look far in our world, in other countries, to find that to be true today. There are brothers and sisters, the persecuted church, who are running for their lives this very moment because of this kind of ideology. The Antichrist will slaughter openly those who defy him in an effort to exercise global control. And so it's no wonder that the Apostle John then says, When I saw her, I marveled greatly. John's mind is blown by what he sees. Which is really saying something, because John's seen a lot up to this point, hasn't he? But it's this that blows his mind. How can something so beautiful be so evil? And what about this beast with seven heads and ten horns? And John's asking, what does this all mean? It's more than he can handle, at which point it says in verse 7, But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. I don't know if that would be encouraging to John or not. He might just want to say, I don't, I don't want to know. I don't want to know, but he's going to get to know. It says in verse 8, the beast that you saw, now hang with me, we're going to be tempted to check out here in a minute, but don't, all right? The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. All right, don't check out on me, all right? What's this all about? This was and it is was 
and is not, and is to come. Well, that phrase refers to the counterfeit death and resurrection of the Antichrist that we studied earlier back in chapter 13 when it said in verse 3, one of its, the Antichrist's heads, seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And so back in chapter 13, by all appearances, the Antichrist died and rose again. Who does that sound like? Jesus, in an effort to counterfeit the authentic resurrection of Jesus, because that's what Satan does, right? Again, not an original thought in his brain, if he actually has a brain. Not, nothing original. He copies and he counterfeits. And this counterfeit of the resurrection proves to be enough to deceive those who dwell on the earth during the tribulation. They are seduced by the counterfeit resurrection, by the woman, by the false religion. And so the angel goes on to reveal more of the mystery in verse 9. It says, This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now that has caused some to say, Aha! Babylon must be Rome. Why? Because Rome has been referred to historically as the city of seven hills, um, which has then led some to even go a step further to declare that Babylon, the false religion of the Antichrist, is really the Roman Catholic Church. I don't think we can be dogmatic about that. I think it's possible that Rome is in play here because of the reference to the city of seven hills. But what we do know is that verse 10 goes on to say about these mountains, these hills, they are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. So the seven heads of the beast are symbols representing seven kings or kingdoms. Again, it's so important that we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture so that we don't guess, we don't jump to conclusions the scripture helps us to understand these kings and kingdoms. It describes them as five of whom have fallen, five of whom have fallen. I believe this refers to the kingdoms that we see in the past historically, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and then Greece, kingdoms that were center stage and who have fallen, Gentile kingdoms that have arisen and fallen prior to John's writing, it then refers to one that is. Now, what would be the kingdom that is at the time of John's writing? Rome. And then it refers to the other that has not yet come. And what kingdom would that be? The Antichrist world empire, which is future. So, then things get, to me, a little bit confusing in verse 11. It says, as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. Anybody want to help me with that? Sounds like a riddle, doesn't it? And I hate riddles. I'm so bad at riddles, but it's, it's really not that bad, okay? Fortunately, we can figure this out together. The Antichrist was our seventh kingdom, was it not? Right? The one that was future, the one that was yet to come. It belongs to the seven, just as it says. But it very briefly came to an end. When did it briefly come to an end? when it appeared that the Antichrist had died and then was raised to life in chapter 13. And so with his apparent resurrection, he himself became the eighth. And so that's what it means when it says it was and is not, and it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. Does that make sense? Everybody with me? Good. All right. 
But what ultimately happens to this eighth kingdom, the kingdom of the Antichrist, it says in verse 11, as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, it goes to destruction, which ultimately is the overwhelming message of Revelation. God wins. God wins. Satan loses. And so this kingdom of the Antichrist will be destroyed. It will be destroyed just as we saw in the bold judgments and will see completed by the second advent of Christ. So I admit there's a lot of symbolism and a lot going on in those three verses, but you're with me and so we can move on together from there. Uh, more symbolism in verse 12. In verse 12 it says, And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one, one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. So the beast upon which the false religion rides has seven heads. We just talked about the identity of those seven heads, but what's up with the ten horns? What are the ten horns all about? The ten horns are ten future kings that will rule the world under the authority of the Antichrist. We don't know who these ten rulers are today, so again, it doesn't say we shouldn't speculate. What it does say is that they will be kings for one hour, meaning that their rule will be very brief, limited to a portion of the tribulation. And their shared mission is given in verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb, meaning that their shared mission is to destroy everything associated with Christ and his kingdom. But then the plot thickens a twist of events in verse 16 that probably surprises us. The happy marriage between the woman, the false religion, Babylon the Great, riding on the back of the Antichrist, the beast, this happy marriage dissolves as the beast turns on the woman. Look at verse 16. It says, And the ten horns that you saw, they are the beast. They and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. The ten horns that you saw, those ten future kings and the beast, will hate the prostitute. And so the beast will turn on the woman, ending her brand of false religion, and demand that he alone become the object of all worship. Again, we're making some speculation here about the nature of that initial false religion, but again, you can anticipate it's some fuzzy, squishy, occultish, everything goes kind of thing, and you could probably throw in a little bit of this and a little bit of that. The only thing you can't do is worship Jesus and be um, people of the book, of, of God's word, but it will be kind of this potpourri of everything that that's going to change. That squishy, fuzzy, man-centered prosperity theology now is going to become beast theology and beast theology only. Check out what is behind it all in verse 17. It says, For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Now what is behind that? I believe religion and power are going to be consolidated in the beast, preparing for his ultimate destruction. It's all going to be right there, all for his destruction. As it says in the second half of verse 14, And the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. The good news of Revelation, the Lamb 
wins good triumphs over evil, righteousness over unrighteousness, truth over lies, the bride over the prostitute. Well, the passage ends by saying this in verse 18. And the woman that you saw, John, is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, We've been talking about Babylon, the ideology of the Antichrist. Babylon is false religion. And now we get to the very end of chapter 17, and it tells us here Babylon is identified as a specific literal city that exists during the tribulation. So which is it? Is it an ideology or is it a city? Yes. Yes. It is both. It is both. And that's where chapter 18 will come into play next week. It will make clear that it is indeed both and how both will be dealt with. So during the tribulation, Babylon not only represents the ideology of the beast, but also his capital city, a capital city of the Antichrist that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Again, telling us that Babylon not only has religious significance as an ideology, but it also has material and political significance as well. So we're going to hit that next week. All right, let's conclude today by talking about application, application and answering the question, how should we then live? And you know, I'm going to do something kind of selfish here for a second, and this isn't going to play well in the commons or on the, uh, the live stream, but um, let me just hear from one or two of you. If you were preaching this text and you were answering the question, how should we then live? What would you say is the point or points of application for this text. What would you say? Somebody raise a hand and give me, give me an answer. Yeah. Prepare. Prepare for what? Uh, I like that. Prepare for how you raise your children, how you prepare your family, because the future, I mean, the present is wild and woolly as it is, right? We know that the future is going to get even more wild and woolly. Prepare. Make sure that you and your families are rooted deeply in the scriptures and that you are preparing. Because I got to tell you, that prostitute, that woman is going to be very, very seductive and very, very alluring. Yes. Beware. Beware. And all around us, beware of what's being taught. Beware because, again, Babylon is alive and well in our midst. The seeds have been planted. It is sprouting up all around us. And again, there is a way that seems right to a man, to a woman, but the end thereof leads in death. Well, let me give you a couple points from my, those are wonderful. Um, as we noted earlier, the passage is really a tale of two women, is it not? It's a tale of two women. The first woman is the great prostitute, Babylon the Great, the mother of all false religion, religion which seduces and ensnares but will ultimately be destroyed. And the second woman is the bride of Christ, the true church, virtuous, pure, and holy, and will ultimately be victorious. And the apostle Paul gave the church, gave the bride, this warning in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, He said, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. I think that's exactly what we've been talking about today. Some will depart from the faith. That gets my attention. Um, Sadly, I think because of the media-driven world in which we live, we hear almost daily, it seems like at times, about high-profile 
teachers, pastors, leaders who are falling away from the faith. And we might wonder, well, how does that happen? I think we're talking today about the how that happens. So how do we keep this from happening to us? How do we keep from becoming a 1 Timothy 4.1 casualty? I believe it comes down to this, and I, I love how the text gives its application, but we resist the seduction of Babylon when we remember who we are in Christ. We resist the seduction of Babylon when we remember who we are in Christ. Let's go back to verse 14. You may have noticed. It's like, hey, you skipped part of this. Anybody notice that? I see. Bill Benson, you get an A-plus today. Good job. Good job. All right, verse 14. Let's go back there. It says, They, the ten kings, will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Oh, this is beautiful. Okay, right in the middle of all this ugliness is this beauty describing the bride. She is called, she is chosen, she is faithful. And so that is our identity in Christ. Let's take just a brief moment to talk about each one of these and how they help us to overcome the seduction of the prostitute. First of all, we are called from death to life. We are called from death to life. Um, just like when Jesus called Lazarus from the grave. It's the same thing. Lazarus! Come forth, Jesus said. And what did Lazarus do? He came forth. And there was a day in the life of each true believer when God said the same thing to you and to me. Chad, come forth. Jesus called me out of my spiritual death. He raised me to spiritual life. And just as Lazarus had nothing to do with his resurrection, I had nothing to do with my conversion, all right? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, the Apostle Paul tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Lazarus, you contributed nothing to your resurrection. Chad, you contributed nothing to your salvation. It is the gift of God and not a result of works. Chad, you didn't earn it. You didn't try hard enough. You didn't. Chad, you weren't such a good, wise boy that you made the right choice to follow Jesus. That is not how it works. I was dead, and Jesus called me. Not a result of works so that no one no one may boast. If, if we could contribute something to it, if there was some wise choice that I made to follow Jesus, guess what? I would boast about it. God says, no, it's not about you. It's about me. And so we resist the seduction of Babylon when we remember who we are in Christ, that first and foremost, we are called from death to life. And that puts us in a very humble position of dependence upon God and of gratitude and thanksgiving, which says, well, what, what more can I do but to offer myself as a living sacrifice to you, holy and pleasing in your sight? Next, the text tells us that the bride is chosen, specifically chosen for good works. I love that after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Unbind him and let him go. He's got work to do in my kingdom. I haven't just raised him for no purpose. He is to be a living witness of my resurrection power. Guess what? That's our job too, to be a living witness of God's resurrection power, that when he called us from death to life, that's who we are. We are a miracle. We are walking, living, breathing miracle of God's grace, and we are chosen to go out and to testify to this resurrection power. 
Ephesians 2.10. I love how these, these verses, these passages keep interplaying. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, God chose you. He chose you personally, specifically. He created you uniquely with your own personality, your own physical characteristics, your own proficiencies. Why? So that you would fulfill your unique purpose of good works that shine a light on the greatness of God. Just like Lazarus testifying to God's resurrection power. So the whole world is able to see his glory. So we resist the seduction of Babylon when we remember who we are in Christ. We are called from death to life. We are chosen for good works. And lastly, we're faithful. We're faithful to the end. Just like the bride. If you've gotten married, you've recited wedding vows, right? Now in our culture, in our world, and because of sin, um, vows get broken, and we understand that. But in God's design, by God's design, vows are not to be broken. Wedding vows that say something to the effect, I, I take thee to be my wedded wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part according to God's holy ordinance. And thereto I pledge thee my faith. There's a lot of crossover here in how we relate to the groom, Jesus, the bride, the church, faithful to the end. Just like those martyred tribulation saints that we've read about throughout the course of, of, of Revelation, these martyred tribulation saints who remained faithful to the end and find themselves in the throne room of God, worshiping, glorifying him. Why and how were they able to remain faithful to the end? Because they knew that their coming reward in heaven was far greater than anything Babylon could offer them here on earth. We must be reminded of that and remain faithful to the end, that these light and momentary troubles that we are experiencing here on earth, which don't seem so light and momentary in the moment, do they? But the Apostle Paul gives us that perspective to say, guess what? They're nothing compared to what we're going to experience in the presence of God for all eternity. So don't be seduced by a prostitute who makes promises that she can't keep in the temporal. Remain faithful to the groom, Jesus Christ, in whose presence we will have the privilege of being able to glory and worship for all eternity. So we resist the seduction of Babylon when we remember who we are in Christ, that we are called from death to life, that we are chosen for good works, that we are to remain faithful to the end. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we just love your word, and we thank you for it. We thank you for its beauty and how we see its interconnectedness from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. It all fits. It all fits, and it all points to you. Father, we acknowledge fully that Babylon is alive and well in our midst, and God, perhaps some of us this morning would have to just be very honest and say, you know what? We have fallen prey to the prostitute. We've been seduced. And we are going down the wrong path. And it is a path of destruction. And so, God, I pray for anyone here this morning who just needs to spend some time doing business with you to say, uh, God, forgive me. Forgive me. I repent. 
I turn from the prostitute. I turn to God alone. And I, um, by the power of the Holy Spirit, walk in the direction of righteousness and of holiness. God, may we be faithful in training up our children and training up our grandchildren and training up those around us that, to disciple them. This, is, this, this ultimately becomes a discipleship issue. If we are not discipled well, we're going to fall prey to the prostitute. So God, as a church, as we fulfill our mandate, our mission to make disciples, may we do so effectively. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.